Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. everybody welcome back to the midnight myth everyone's favorite uh history mythology pop culture podcast yeah the podcast where we talk about your favorite stories and what's going on below the surface of them so i want to peel back the onion so to speak and let you guys know a little bit of our process i've done this a few times and it is relevant to the introduction of today's topic so i often go back and listen to older episodes And I have a process of meditation around them where I try to learn what worked, what didn't work, what could have been done better. And I recently went back and I listened to our podcast on The Last Jedi. And I forget what number it was because we've done so many at this point. And I realized when listening to that podcast, there was a humongous hole in that podcast. Yeah, it was a pretty big hole. It was a hole in which a ray of light was shining right through. And that whole was, we never mentioned the protagonist Ray in that podcast, unless it was like passingly mentioned the character Ray. So this got my gears turning. I'm like, what happened there? Why didn't I give and Laurel give Ray her due? She is the hero of the last Jedi. She's the protagonist. Yeah, why did we spend so much time on Luke, so much time on Kylo Ren, so much time on Finn and Poe that we overlooked the hero that we're all rooting for? And in no other story that we've examined have we done this. So then I went back even further. So I started poking around. What other mythology, history, pop culturally discussions that are happening talk about Rey? So I started looking for video essays, blogs, uh, where people were diagnosing, not the right word, people were peering into Ray critically to try to understand this character. Surprisingly, I couldn't find much at all. The world of Ray is very much consumed by the fan theory, by the spoiler, by the who are her parents really? Was Kylo Ren lying? Any discourse that you're going to find out there about Ray 
has very little to do with looking into the details and the themes of her character. And we think this is a gaping hole in the discourse about Star Wars in general. And it's preceded by, uh, I think in some ways, the marketing on The Force Awakens that downplayed her heroism by the fact that when the first toys came out for The Force Awakens, Rey was uh, conspicuously missing from that order. It's, it's very much a, a hole that everyone is omitting. Absolutely. And then my next question was, you know, is this because maybe Ray's not that interesting of a character? Is that the problem? Nobody's talking about Ray other than the mysteries and the plot points that she's not worthy of deep character analysis. And so I went back and I rewatched the force awakens in the last Jedi. And I realized that Ray is probably the most interesting character there is. And I felt compelled to write the wrong. So we've done character case studies um, for other things. We're going to do a character case study in Ray. We want to talk all things about Star Wars' latest hero and really try to understand this character in the hopes to kick off a broader conversation about this character and maybe start some momentum around really getting to know Star Wars' latest hero. And I'll preface this. It became abundantly clear in researching this podcast that this can't be a single episode. There's far too much to discuss. So we're going to contain our analysis of Rey specifically to The Force Awakens. And this is going to be a Rey episode part one. Everything to do with Rey and her relationship to The Force Awakens. So we're going to save all The Last Jedi Rey till next week, which will be part two. And needless to say, there will be heavy, heavy spoilers for The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi on these two episodes. So if you have not caught up with the latest Star Wars, get on that right now and then come back and listen to these uh, because we are not going to hold anything back. We're going to share all the grisly details. Yeah, we're going to go in and we're pretty much going to look at The Force Awakens from the lens of trying to understand Rey. What does she represent to Star Wars? What does she represent to storytelling and what does she represent to America and then all of humanity writ large? However, before we begin this analysis, if you are so inclined and want to reach us, Laurel, how can our audience members get in touch with us? Oh yeah, please reach out. You can hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for more content and a contact form. And then if you're enjoying what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe if you haven't already, and leave us a rating or a review if you have the time, because that really helps us reach a broader audience. And we would love to grow the Midnight Myth family. Thank you. So I'd like to start, if you'll permit me. So a few basic facts about The Force Awakens. It came out December 18th, 2015. Its worldwide ticket sales were $2,068,233,624. That's kind of a disappointing uh, opening, don't you think? No. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I think that's a fuck ton of money. Can you imagine that much money? I can't. No. So, I mean, Disney paid, I think, $4 billion for Star Wars. And obviously they sunk 
many millions of dollars into making this movie, but they recouped from ticket sales alone over half of what they purchased for Star Wars. So amazing. That's amazing. Uh, it is you know, directed by J.J. Abrams. It is very much part of J.J. Abrams's sort of vision and direction. And the character Ray is the protagonist of The Force Awakens. So my intro point into understanding Ray, where I started the research into this character was, in particular in The Force Awakens, is A, what is Ray's relationship to the Force? As the hero of Star Wars, she will have a deep connection to the Force. So how do we understand that? Which led me to the question of let's understand the Force. And then the second layer is what is her relationship to Luke Skywalker in The Force Awakens? And the reason why that was a question that I wanted to know and wanted to, to get into is because Luke is the hero of the original trilogy. So now that we're starting a new trilogy, there's going to be some obvious comparisons between Rey and Luke, in particular in the first movie. So just to clarify, you're talking about a thematic relationship between Rey and Luke, not a familial relationship, of course, because I know that's been on everybody's lips as well. Correct. Um, yeah, the thematic links between that. So let's start a little bit about Force and the Force lore. So we're going to not mention the prequels in this, which yeah, no. adds to the Force lore. But I want to focus into the first lore as expressed through the original trilogy and The Force Awakens. That the Force is an energy force, for lack of a better term. It is a combination of, of energy that binds the galaxy together. And the lore, it seems to seek balance between opposing moral forces expressed through dark energy and light where dark is the more aggressive, the more angry, the more impulsive where light is the more friendly, the more contemplative and the more peaceful. So every hero in star Wars will have a connection to the light and every villain has a connection to the dark. They manifest in political systems where the light is often symbolically linked to democracy um, self-determinativism, liberalism, not in the liberal conservative way, but in the liberal ideas of a society where the dark is associated with militarism, authoritarianism, genocide. The light respects all life. The dark seeks to control all life. And if that means you got to kill some to get there, then that's okay. It's something you've mentioned on the podcast before, that evil in its truest form is about using life as uh, a means rather than an ends. So uh, the dark side is going to be associated with uh, an embrace of, of violence because life does not have value on its own. The light side is not going to be anti-death. The light side is never anti-dying. It never fears those things because it respects the value of life and it respects the value of the natural order. Exactly. And in the simplest terms the light side is good and the dark side is evil. Right. Right. In the very simplest storytelling terms, um, the force uh, requires discipline. It requires training. It requires uh, mentorship in order to access your force sensitivity to then get you to a point where you can wield the force adequately. That being said, because it requires a level of teaching orthodoxies have developed around it. One order being the Jedi order, 
in which they are about exploring the light side, another order being the Sith, which is an order that explores the dark side. And in The Force Awakens, we see the reincarnation of the Sith in the Knights of Ren, who are like the new version of the Sith. Um, They work for the First Order, which is the new version of the Empire. And then we see the Resistance, which is the new sort of redoing of the Rebel Alliance, and uh, they are part of the light side. The Force Awakens opens with, the Force is out of balance. The dark side holds more sway than the light. This is because Luke Skywalker, who was responsible to rebuild the light side and rebuild the Jedi, has vanished. It's something interesting about the title crawl is that the second this movie starts, the very first sentence after a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is, Luke Skywalker is missing. We are reminded that this is the Skywalker saga, and we are stepping into a story that started many, many years ago and into a story that is a continuation of one character's journey. Absolutely. So that's my sort of overview there of the Force. Um, And we'll dive into Ray's relationship of the Force. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Ray and Luke's parallels in The Force Awakens before we get into the nitty-gritty of the movie, if you'll permit me. I would love to, yeah. Um, so, few things that Ray and Luke overlap. One, both orphans. Right. Estranged from their parents. Both on desert planets. Both talented pilots. Right? Both uh, wear white sort of tunics. Mm-hmm. Both certainly wide-eyed optimists. Youthful and interested in what's on the horizon. Both very talented. You know, things that they do, they just tend to do well, which is a single trait of someone with high force sensitivity. A person that's really connected to the force naturally, meaning they don't need a lot of training. They don't need a lot of education. The force in them just kind of jive. They tend to just be good at things. Right, even though we don't know that about either of them when we first meet them. Absolutely, but it's part of the reason that they excel at everything that they do, because when the force is on your side, it's like having, you know, a literal lady luck charm, you know, where things just tend to start to go your way. Yeah. So if you're, you know, flying a plane, or pardon me, if you're flying a spacecraft and it's a little dicey, if you're force sensitive, the force is just kind of going to guide you a little bit to make the right move at the right time. Yeah. And, um, but I think there is about where the parallels stop. You know, so I think we visually link Leia, or Leia, stupid me. We visually link Ray and Luke in the, the, their environment, uh, their family structure. Their costumes. Their costumes. Um, in the movie, we see her and Luke's lightsaber interact. So I think there's a lot of visual you know, clues that say that they are, like Luke was the hero and hence Ray is the hero. But I think in the sort of meat and bones of it, They diverge a lot. Well, we do have to acknowledge, um, of course, that Star Wars, the original trilogy, is heavily based upon a guy we've mentioned a lot on the podcast, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, and the monomyth, the idea that all of these uh, epic stories of heroes and villains throughout history and cultures follow similar beats along this path where a hero departs, faces trials, 
reaches and uh, secures a boon and then comes back master of both worlds. And Ray is put in that similar position. So we do have to acknowledge some uh, storytelling structural things that are going to remain similar between the two of them. But I do think you're right that the parallels between them are visual and are structural, but are not quite the same character-wise. I totally agree. If we're really diving into who they are and what makes them tick. So I think I would like to call Ray the mentorless Jedi. Yeah. I would like to call Ray that. And the reason why I like to call her that is the one thing Ray never gets in The Force Awakens that Luke gets is a teacher, someone to guide her and, and lead her down the path of light. And Luke gets that in Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan is the one that opens up his world and opens up Luke's world, to be specific, into the Force. Ray not having that gives her a, a totally unique and different relationship to the Force. And Ray doesn't have surrogate parents either. Think about Luke's upbringing. Yes, of course, he's a little bit more of a commoner. He's not... Uh, you know, living the royal life that he would have had if he'd stayed with his uh, with his real parents. But he is brought up by a loving family on a moisture farm. Ray was basically sold into slavery by her parents who left her with Ankar Plutt. And she is completely independent. Uh, I would say in age in Star Wars, how old do you think she is? Like 20? Uh, she's She's a kid. But yeah, she is, she's a young woman. She is making it on her own from step one. So not only does she not have a mentor for the force, she doesn't have a mentor to teach her about growing up and coming of age and becoming a woman. She's had to figure all of this out on her own, and she's done so by being extremely resourceful and relying on her own inner strength, which we know later is aided by the fact that she's force-sensitive. Yeah, and I would like to keep this in mind, the mentorless Jedi, and I'd like to come back to that as we dive into the movie, uh, more specifically, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. There's another parallel that I want to draw for the, uh, for the impetus of Rey, for like who we associate Rey with uh, in terms of structure and in terms of those sort of visual and thematic parallels. And that's going to reach back to classic cinema, I think Ray very much is a hero in the vein of Dorothy Gale from Wizard of Oz, who provides us a really interesting model for the fantasy world that's actually a world you step into beyond the veil of the ordinary. So Dorothy Gale is a is a woman who grows up, a young woman who grows up in Kansas, which is a sepia-toned, sort of dust bowl era, uh mundane and common ordinary life. She's an orphan. She's brought up by her aunt and uncle with mysterious circumstances. And yet she dreams of what might be beyond the rainbow. And when she gets that wish, she steps from sepia to technicolor. Uh, Dorothy's story is really interesting because she's just like any of us. We might be living a completely ordinary life, but dream of something greater. And I think we see that in Ray as well. The first moments that we see her coming off of the scavenging line, you know, getting her one quarter portion to feed herself. Where is she living? In a downed AT-AT walker. She's living among the artifacts of a mythology that she has grown up with. She 
puts on a rebel helmet and gazes off into the sunset, just content like a kid. She's like any of us wishing that we could grow up to be Jedi. And when she finally embarks on her journey, she goes from her desert, dusty planet, which is covered in sepia tones and thematically dry and uh, gray and brown, into Technicolor when she goes to visit Maz Kanata. She goes from a world that's extremely ordinary into a world where all possibilities open up because the folklore that she has dreamed of is real. She goes from ordinary to extraordinary in following that yellow brick road. Yeah, I totally love where you're going with that as another sort of thematic archetype or lens or uh, sort of guiding way that we can examine the character Ray. Um, I'd like to jump into some specifics of the movie that you touched on. Is that okay? Let's do it. So I think Ray's story has three main acts. The first act is her in the desert, and I think that ends when she's in the Millennium Falcon leaving Jakku, and she makes the decision to help BB-8 find the base. Right? And so that would be the end of her first act. I'd say the end of her second act is when Kylo Ren captures her and takes her back to Starkiller base. And that would be the, you know, from the Millennium Falcon to that, that's act two. And then act three is at, you know, once on Starkiller base up until the end of the movie. Would yeah. you agree with those breakdowns? Yeah. And if we're looking at the breakdowns of the act structure, act structure for her character, we want to look at the choices that she makes that lead to those. So she makes a choice to save BB-8 and go with Finn. She makes a choice to use the Force for the first time. Uh, every single time she moves into a new act, it's because she is choosing to follow some path that's left open to her. Right. So let's start with it. Can we start with Act 1? Yes. So... I'd like to call Act One's theme waiting for my family. So what is Ray's drive in Act One? It is to survive and count down the days until her family returns. Yeah. So I think this, A, sets up Ray as patient, Ray as tough, Ray as resilient, but Ray as lonely. Yeah. You know, someone that once is longing for in other words, she is longing for the galaxy to present the answers to her loneliness to her rather than have her go and create answers for herself. Right. She accepts the status quo that she is going to be a scavenger until the day she dies and that she is going to, you know, be foraging for goods among star destroyers and trading them to Uncarplet for the soilent green or whatever she's eating. And it's, we see it's this like Star Wars. Boom, yeah, synthetic bread. Oh, it's a, it's an amazing practical effect. But yeah. uh, we see this in the moment where she looks at the old woman in the junkyard as they're polishing off their pieces before presenting them to trade them for food. And she looks over at a woman who is like 80 years old and doing the same activity she is. And credit to Daisy Ridley for this really incredibly subtle performance, but there's this mixture on her face of like pity for this old woman and a recognition that that's going to be her, that she's going to do this for the next 80 years of her life. And also just like a, yeah, I accept that. She's yeah. not challenging the status quo in any way, even though she's not fully contended by it. And I think that speaks volumes to the acting prowess of Daisy Ridley in the direction of J.J. Abrams. The fact that we can look at that one moment and glean so many emotions from one look. 
She's so good. Yeah. She's really good. She's incredibly talented at what she does without a question. Um, so, you know, in, in this idea of waiting for my family in waiting for the universe or the galaxy to give her the action, my question for you, is this theme denial or is it optimism? Well, that's a really interesting question because when I was writing down kind of what are the character, what are the characteristic traits of Ray, I think a, an unchallengeable optimism is part of it. Um, I think I, you can expand that to how she views others, how she encounters strangers or um, new people who, new people or droids who come into her purview um, with incredible hope. Uh, you know, she places a lot of hope in BB-8 and a lot of hope in Finn, even though when first meeting them, she's a little guarded. She's very quick to open up and pledge her loyalty. And because of that, she elicits loyalty from people. So there's a trust that I think is built out of optimism in her. And when we see her saying, yeah, they'll come back, they'll come back. I don't, I don't think there's denialism in that, um, at least from her perspective. I don't think she has sat with that helmet on and thought, oh, they're never coming back for me. I think she truly believes they're coming back. Yeah, I would add a layer to that because I, I, I do agree with you. And I would add another layer on top of that. And as I'm prone to do, I'd like to quote my man Socrates. Oh, do it. Socrates said, or Plato wrote that Socrates said, the unexamined, the un wow, can't talk, the unexamined life is a life not worth living. Mm, yeah. And I think that is where Ray is in the beginning of this movie. It's a similar sentiment to ignorance is bliss. And she is not critically thinking. Yeah. She's not critically acting. She's not even taking advantage of her own skill set to truly benefit herself. Right. She's, she's surviving. She's surviving because she's not examining the truths of the universe or the world that are, that are in front of her, right? Because she is not doing that, it means I'll chalk every day in the, the belly of the AT-AT walker or at-at walker, depending on what you want to say. You say at-at, you're wrong. AT-AT is the right thing. <laughs> um, so as she's chalking, scratching each day on the, yeah. the, the wall and scavenging for little tiny loaves of synthetic bread, she's not examining really what she's doing or why. She's not asking herself, does, does my family love me? Did they love me? Are they coming back? Should they be coming back? Should I be waiting? And it isn't until fate intervenes and when she meets BB-8. And I'd say the other trait that we see in Act 1 is an unshakable empathy. Yeah, yeah. She has empathy for a droid, a synthetic life form that most Star Wars organic creatures don't share. Right. She does a little bit of a Disney princess thing and that it's like, oh, this poor harmless creature is being harmed by this guy who I know is just a, a you know, a corrupt uh, traitor. And I'm going to... Tito. He wants him Tito. for spare yeah, parts. He wants you for parts. And there's just this immediate like, oh, let me go save this little lamb. That's so just, it's so heartwarming and it's so tragic as well because you have to imagine nobody's ever really done that for Ray, but there's a part of her that when she sees somebody in need, can't help but step in. And this leads her directly to Finn. And through Finn, she gets thrust into an adventure that she didn't ask for, that she didn't want. And 
the where is my family theme, per, it still is all in on returning to Jakku no matter what, because when her family comes back to, to find her, She's she be needs there. to be there. However, she accepts the call to get BB-8 back to the base. She realizes that there is something bigger at play and that she has a moral obligation to help and protect this droid. And what happens right before she makes that choice? Finn divulges to her that BB-8 is carrying a map to Luke Skywalker. What does she say? I thought he was a myth. The light in her eyes just brightens a million times, and there's this opening of the world around her. It's like, oh, this story that I've told to myself before bed every night isn't just a tall tale. It isn't just a fairy tale. There's a real Luke Skywalker out there. And this idea of the mythic resistance becomes so uh, seductive to her that here's another one of the character traits that I noted in her was that I think she makes decisions instinctively. I think she makes decisions based on emotion and without too much time to uh, weigh the pros and cons of things, which in many ways is a great strength for her and in many ways turns out to be a weakness. Throughout the franchise thus far, she makes decisions based on her gut, which sometimes is exactly the right thing to do and sometimes gets her into really bad scrapes. But it's why she jumps aboard the Millennium Falcon and says, let's jet off the planet. Absolutely. And let's go through, you know, and take this massive risk and risk my life for this droid because of this promise that the world might not just be a desert. And when we move now into, I'd say, Ray's second act, that is where we meet Han Solo in The Force Awakens for the first time. And at that point, the movie kind of becomes Han's movie for a little bit. And it does have to become Han's movie for a little bit because of what we know happens in the end. We need to know that that is earned. Um, I'm talking, of course, about the death of Han Solo. We need to understand his relationship to Kylo Ren and his relationship to Leia and how it has changed since uh, since we left them. But I do agree. She kind of gets her movie hijacked, and that's because Star Wars is so much bigger than one character. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely right. And how do you not have Han Solo back in the Millennium Falcon and not make that be the most important thing happening in the movie? Right. I don't know how, as a writer or a storyteller, when you are given the gift of being able to do something in the Star Wars universe, you get Harrison Ford and Chewbacca and the Millennium Falcon. How does that not end up taking over your movie? It's incredibly moving. Um, but one of the most interesting things that we get in this movie is how Harrison Ford and Daisy Ridley play off of each other as these two characters. I think this movie spends a lot of time trying to plant the seeds of guessing who her parents are, and so some of this can be attributed to that. But we talked about her similarities to Luke, but I think she has a lot of similarities to Han as well. When we see them together in the cockpit, finishing each other's sentences, and we see how bold and daring both of them are because of the way they have been brought up, uh, they both have this philosophy of never tell me the odds. I never ask if something is possible until I've already done it. Um, there's this gut instinct that drives every decision that they make that's kind of a, a beautiful chemistry that the two of them share. Yes, I think that your instincts there are absolutely right. See what I did? I see what you did there. Well, when she first finds out she's in the Millennium Falcon, she has heard of the Millennium Falcon as the famous smuggler ship, where Finn's just like, wait, aren't you a rebel general? 
And we see these sort of two sides of Han articulated through both of those characters. And what Ray is drawn to is like, yo, you're a badass pilot, mechanic, smuggler. You're a smuggler. Like, that's awesome because I'm from a junkyard yeah. where smugglers are often at. So she connects to that aspect of Han and connects to it instantly. And we also see the other things that I think we can get from Act Two of Ray um, is we see with her her longing to have a mentor. Yes. When Han and to have a family. Han shows her some paternal love, guidance. And when Han starts to view her as somewhat equal, we see that when he offers her a job, we see Ray truly ecstatic. She's so touched by that. Yeah, and truly happy about the fact that like the world's greatest, the galaxy's greatest smuggler wants me to, on his crew. Like she's just like, oh my god! Like she's so humbled and so touched by that. Yeah, and we see it with Finn too. Um, you know, we see her growing attachment to him as a as a dear friend, and their instant chemistry, uh, which you know when they first you know, get off of Jakku, the way they hug each other. And they're like, wow, you're so amazing. You're so amazing. I don't know how I did that. How did you do that? And there's this childlike wonder at each other. That's like, did we just become best friends? We have so much room for activities. So much room for activities on the Millennium Falcon. Falcon. Um, But we see that too in Maz's cantina. It's when he decides that he wants to leave, she begs him not to go because she has put her trust in him. And she has said, oh, good, I have a friend now who's not going to leave me. And then he says, I'm going to leave, come with me. Um, so there's a, a real there's a real longing to forge human connection with Ray that she doesn't even need necessarily a mentor. She just needs a friend. She just needs a family, somebody who's not going to give up on her. So one significant thing happens in Act 2, uh, that does involve Ray in act two of Ray's story. I don't want to say yes. act two of the whole movie because this is all about Ray. She gets the call to Luke Luke's lightsaber. We see the force fully awaken in Ray for the first time. And it presents itself in the vision that Ray has. And I think this is where the movie starts to shift back towards being thematically more about Ray it still has, you know, we still haven't seen Princess Leia or C-3PO yet. So it still has to deal with these legends of the Star Wars universe. But this is where we start to see Rey's importance thematically start to rise. We're cued to this visually by the fact that she is now in this bizarre force vision. For the first time ever, we get to see a force vision manifest. And what do we see in that? We see tidbits from past, present, and future all in this vision in which we hear Alex Guinness voice echo Ray and then you McGregor whisper, you've taken the first step. Yeah. Um, it's a moment where she comes in contact with another artifact of the original trilogy, which is something she has done her entire life. The first moment we see her, she's spelunking down the inside of a star destroyer. And yet there is a greater significance to this one. As soon as she touches this artifact that we all know, that we all have this intertextual connection to, that we can remember every battle this lightsaber ever fought, she has this deep and potent reaction to it that is generated by her connection to the Force. And what's so fascinating about it is that she refuses it. This is her true call to adventure, and it's the first moment that we realize Rey is the hero of this saga. 
Ray is going to be the awakening force. We were misled by the trailers to think that it was somewhere else, but this is our new hope. And she says, no, I don't ever want to touch that thing again. And that's because to call on Dorothy again, she still believes there's no place like home. She said, no, I don't want a job with Han Solo because I have to wait for my family. No, I don't want to follow the path that this lightsaber has given me because I have to go back because I have to be there when my family comes back. And Maz Kanata says to her, you know, I can see in your eyes that you know the truth, that what you're longing for lies ahead, not behind. This is where Maz gets to be the sort of spiritual guide to her. She is breaking down the vision that Ray just had and telling her there is a broader and bigger galaxy and you have to take your place in it and you have to stop looking towards the past and embrace the present and embrace this the galaxy that is in front of you and that your place is to fight in the for the light in this saga and this and her rejection of it is because we have seen now Ray's entire worldview crumble in this vision. This entire movie is about destroying everything she has ever put her faith in, right? So she has put her faith in the status quo on Jakku, that if I keep my head down and keep working, I will survive and I will make it and my family will come back for me. So it breaks down the fact that Jakku is the only thing there is and says, hey, actually, did you know there was this much green in the whole galaxy? Also, did you know that fairy tales are real and magic is real? And then the most... Uh, the most traumatic, even though it's also the most explosively liberating realization is, is not just your parents are never coming back, but you're not ordinary. You are the chosen one. And I could look at other literary figures for this. Luke is one that like you thought you were an ordinary moisture farmer. It turns out you're the chosen one. Same thing with Anakin Skywalker. But outside of Star Wars, that's Harry Potter, right? You're a character who lives under the cupboard in a cupboard under the stairs, and then all of a sudden, magic is real, and you have to defeat the Dark Lord. Like, that's the most insane breakdown of your entire basis of reality, and that is enough to break a person. So to have a character come out the other side of that okay and ready to fight takes a really, really strong human being. I couldn't agree more with everything that you said. Imagine you spent your entire life with one motivation other than survive, which is be patient. My family will return only to learn they're never returning. And upon hearing the very core thing that has gotten you through the, the, the mundane battle for survival, the pain and thirst that you feel by living inside of an, a, downed mechanical machine of war while you're you're scraping by with barely enough food or water and finding out that whole struggle meant nothing. And that's what Maz is saying to Ray. It meant nothing. And not that the next chapter of her her life doesn't have meaning, but you need to open up the door and choose to walk into that next chapter. Who wouldn't? turn around and run 
as right. Ray as Ray ran. Because symbolic she symbolically she's asking, kill the past part of you. Grow up and become a hero, which is a lot to ask of a young woman who has lived by one maxim her entire life. And that is the thing that propels her to the next phase of her act. The choice to to reject the lightsaber is the one that isolates her from all the other heroes in which Kylo Ren captures her. Yeah, it leaves her vulnerable. So should we go into act three? Let's do it. Which is, to me, Rey the Jedi. Rey the Jedi. So this is where Rey has been captured. And this, once the Force has been awakened in her, I'd like to make the analogy that it's just the snowball that starts at the top of the mountain that becomes the avalanche. Now, now that the force is awakened, now that she's been connected to this, uh, an implicit power awakens in her. And before I get in there, I want to say a few quick things about Kylo. And the reason why I want to do that is we've seen Kylo up to this point, probably the most powerful force user we have ever seen in star Wars. He can literally stop blaster bolts with a thought. He can read people's minds and he is a formidable, highly trained user of the dark side. And, uh, and we've talked a lot about Kylo, so I don't want to get too much deeper than that. But when Kylo tries to extract the map from Ray's memory, she learns finally to fight back and she ends up seeing into his mind and using his, his power of force mind readiness, for lack of a better term, directly against him. Yeah. She holds up a mirror in her mind, which is an amazing ability that she has never been able to do, but she feels that instinctive again, instinctive, uh, pull towards that, power. So, and I just want to remind people where we started. The force longs for balance. The force longs for dark and light to equal each other's out. With Kylo, the most powerful dark user since Vader, maybe ever, now the force needs to have an answer in light. And that answer is Rey. And Rey, the mentorless Jedi, instinctively learns how to use the light side of the force. She instinctually fights off the dark side without any training, without any guidance, without even knowing what she's doing. She wields the light side of the force as naturally as any force user ever. And that to me is what truly separates her in the star Wars myth from Luke. Yeah, because Again, she is completely independent. She does this. Uh, her only understanding of the Force comes from Maz saying, oh, the Force connects all of us. Just close your eyes and you can feel it. And that is enough to propel Ray to be able to wield this to her advantage and to help her not only survive but save her friends, which is incredible, especially after we know that she has, has seen her entire worldview come crashing down. And she uses the force to escape the clutches of the First Order. And this leads her to her lightsaber battle with Kylo Ren. It's an interesting battle because I think in this third act of The Force Awakens, we have to start seeing the cracks. 
literally and figuratively because the planet actually cracks in two at one point during this battle. But we have to start to understand where we go next because we know that this is not a standalone movie. This is a saga. And a question that I'm going to ask a lot next week is why is Ray such an interesting and obvious candidate for someone who could potentially turn to the dark side or someone who could be exploited by either side. And I think we have to catch a glimpse of that here in the lightsaber battle, which is... Tell me more, yeah. The battle is inherently a violent one-on-one. And we've seen Luke battle, we've seen Obi-Wan battle, we've seen people on the light side of the Force battle, but... In order to wield a lightsaber, an incredibly violent and destructive tool, only for defense, takes a lot of restraint. And for a character who has not been trained to truly harness her emotions or suppress her emotions, for however we're seeing um, the Jedi manifest itself, we are certainly going to see those emotions drive some of her action in this battle. Her connection to Finn who is the character that she has grown the most close to over this story, uh, even though she's made quite a few important friendships along the way, is going to propel her into a state where she's not only able to harness the Force to fight back and defend herself with Kylo, she also acts quite aggressively in putting him down. There is a moment at the end of that lightsaber battle when she slashes him across the face that is a little scary. It's just a hint of like, we know this character acts on instinct. We know this character acts emotionally. Is this character someone who we could see turning someday? And it just has to sort of plant those seeds to see us move into the next realm because we really want her to stay on the light side. We really believe in her because she's an optimist, because she's positive, because she is so uh, full of heart and full of warmth. And so it would be tragic to see her turn to the dark side. But we have to lay those seeds because this is Star Wars. All right. That is awesome. Awesome. Um, I love everything that you just said. And that is not an interpretation that I even took from that lightsaber battle. So that's, that's bravo. I would like to say that I took it differently. That's totally fair. And, and, and not that one way is more correct or another. I took it, and maybe I'm really reaching, so I took it as a rejection of the prequel Jedi. Okay, okay, okay. The prequel Jedi, so from episode one, two, and three, that Jedi is stoic, not allowed to care, not allowed to have emotions, has to suppress feeling. Even though those are natural and they are the natural order of things, which you're supposed to be at peace with. Which we never see in the original trilogy, Luke. You know, so at at one point in the original trilogy, you know, Obi-Wan says, bury your feelings deep down, Luke. They do you credit, but could be made to serve the emperor. And that advice was wrong. His love for his father is what won the day. Right, absolutely. Whereas it is love itself in the prequels that brings Anakin to the dark side. And I think seeing the passion by which Rey cares about Finn and fights is a rejection that the Jedi must be emotionless. Now, granted, I could be, you might be more right in the foreshadowing. You probably are. You're probably more like, 
I think you're picking up exactly what was put down. I brought my own critique of the prequels into that and said, you're now making the Jedi someone that it's okay to fucking feel, you know? Yeah, but I I love that. I love that because Star Wars is about, and because we have all seen Star Wars out of order, we saw original, then prequels, then sequels. Star Wars is about looking forward and Star Wars is about looking back. It's about cycles. It's about, you know, watching people fail and watching good rise and evil to meet it and evil rise and good to meet it. It's about recognizing the patterns within those cycles. So I think the fact that you and I read two different interpretations of that is important because we are trying to figure out today what Star Wars means to us, what Star Wars is. And Ray becomes a really interesting mirror for our own feelings about the franchise that we love so much. Yeah, well said. Um, could I could I shift gears to one other part of that lightsaber battle? Do it. If that's cool. All right. So here's the one part that I really thought was instructive to understanding Ray. So Finn picks up the lightsaber first. Uh, Kylo is badly injured. Finn kind of fights decently for a non-Jedi. Yeah. But gets he's his been ass well-trained, kicked. yeah. Um, Kylo pretty much thinks he's won. He goes to get the lightsaber. Ray gets the lightsaber. A... Battle ensues. Kylo gets the upper hand. And while he has his red lightsaber against her blue, where the red is reflecting his face, the blue on hers, and he's pushing her towards the edge of the cliff, he says, you need a teacher, someone to show you the ways of the Force. And this reinforces the mentorless Jedi theme that I think resonates. And she looks at him and goes, the Force? At that point... I'm going to argue, and I don't know if this is correct. Ray was not channeling the force at all until she closed her eyes and we see a sense of calm. We see the light side channel through her, and that's when she's able to turn this fight and ultimately win it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely what is happening there. And there is, uh, you know, just exactly what you're saying. She's up against the cliff and the, and the red is pushing in on her. The dark side is pushing in on her and saying, I can show you everything. And she counters with light. And that is, that is what star Wars is all about. It's about meeting hate with love. It's about meeting dark with light. Uh, and that's, that's the choice that she makes. Absolutely. And that is the moment where she becomes the new, the new, that fully becomes the new Jedi. There's no going back to Jakku at this point. Right. We don't see her ever after that point. At no point does she say, I need to go back to Jakku. Where's my family? Now her next phase of her adventure is now that they know where Luke is, is to go get Luke. It's once more into the breach. Because now everyone knows she is the, the she is the new hope. She is the next generation of Jedi. And it's her job now to bring Luke back. And it's, so the things that happened to her before this lightsaber battle are she, she is rescued by Finn. Someone she thinks abandoned her comes back for her, which is incredibly powerful for that character. And then she loses a surrogate father figure. And so she understands the stakes and she chooses to embrace her destiny and says, 
hey, I can put my faith in people, but it's these people that I want to put my faith in. I just have to choose them carefully, and I have to protect them with all of my life. So this thing that I rejected before, I now choose it. And here's where I'm going to go back to Dorothy one more time and say, Do it. You know, there are all of these visual and thematic parallels between Dorothy and Ray, and I think Dorothy gives us such an interesting fantasy model for characters, especially woman characters in fantasy stories. But Ray's departure from Dorothy is the most significant comparison I can offer in that at the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy realizes that she had the power in her all along. She didn't have to put her faith in ruby slippers, like you don't have to put your faith in a lightsaber that it was always in you and you can click your heels together and say there's no place like home and you can go home. Ray realizes that the power was in her all along, that she didn't have to put her faith in, uh, in some abstract idea that she just had to look inside herself. But instead of there's no place like home, she goes as far as she can down the yellow brick road to the end of the galaxy. As soon as this world has opened up for her, she needs more, and she chooses more. Instead of going home to the status quo, she says, let me embrace being a hero and continue my journey. Wow, well said. Um, this was just the first episode. Yeah, this is a, just part one. Of part two. Hopefully we have convinced you uh, that Ray is an amazing character, one that you can learn so much from. And she's a character who only gets more interesting and more complex in The Last Jedi. So we can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. So I, uh, I'd like to say just in my final thought that you may be wondering where your family is. And by that, I say you may be wondering where the object of your desire is. And you may be running your entire life and focusing on waiting for things to happen to you. And Ray's greatest example is that you can do things yourself. You can build your own things. You can shape this world any way that you want. You just have to have the, 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 the youthful enthusiasm, optimism, and bravery that Ray has to her problems. And sometimes it takes a Finn, Maz, Han Solo and BB-8 to get you there because you're never going to be able to do it alone. But you can be the hero in your own narrative and you can bring your own light to whatever problems you have. As they say in Damn Yankees, all you really need is heart. And until next time, guys, be kind. And may the force be with you. 